This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now... Here's Roger Stone. Welcome. I'm Roger Stone, and this is the Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of AM radio, so don't touch that dial. For the next two hours, we're going to be talking politics, news, history, style, food, Pretty broad spectrum here at the Roger Stone Show. Also, you can always hear us uh, at wabcradio.com because we're streaming worldwide. I must tell you that this has been one of the most tumultuous weeks that I have ever seen in American politics. It really goes to prove to you that in politics, a single day can be a lifetime. Uh, and Joe Biden's epic meltdown after his very own Department of Justice appointed special counsel Robert Hur uh, released a report in which he basically said that Biden had not cooperated with his inquiry. He said that Biden had very definitely uh, had classified materials and notebooks with classified notes and papers strewn out throughout his Delaware home. That's in addition to what the FBI found in his garage in at least two locations. By the way, these are documents that he retained during the time he was a vice president. So therefore, at a time that he was theoretically uh, not supposed to have retained any documents. The, the 1977 Documents Act specifically pertains only to the president. But more precisely, uh, the report essentially said that he should not be prosecuted because he's in mental decline. Uh, they were a little gentler than that, but they essentially said that he uh, had trouble remembering things specifically couldn't remember when he was vice president, couldn't remember when his son, Bo Biden, who was the attorney general of Delaware, died, uh, couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, remember really who he was. He kept referring to President Kamala Harris, who is most definitely not president. Now, uh, I read that and said, wow, there is no way that this guy can run for re-election under these circumstances. Uh, Biden then called an immediate live press conference. His staff must have been in a panic mode. Uh, and I actually think he made things substantially worse. Uh, he was uh, angry and hot, lashing out uh, at his own Department of Justice appointed special counsel, insisted 
in that very same presentation that there was nothing wrong with his memory, uh, talked about his son's uh, death, but couldn't remember where the rosary that he said he wore every day in remembrance of his son came from, uh, referred to the, the uh, president of uh, the Palestinian Authority as the president of Mexico, pardon me, the president of Iran as the president of Mexico. Uh, earlier that same week, uh, he had referred to the uh, landmark Supreme Court decision regarding abortion as Roe v. Ward, uh, I think he has a very substantial problem. I mean, let's be clear what, what they're saying here is that he is not going to be charged, so you have the two-tiered justice problem. In other words, Donald Trump is being charged, has been charged with willfully retaining certain documents, documents uh, that it seems to me the 1977 Presidential Records Act allow him to retain. Joe Biden, we're being told, uh, does it, it will not be prosecuted uh, because he's too sick uh, or mentally diminished to stand trial. But this is the same guy they're going to tell us should have his fingers uh, on the nuclear codes. Uh, they have a very serious problem. What they're going to find, however, is that Joe Biden's single greatest, I guess you'd call it a quality, uh, is a stubbornness. This is the job he's always wanted. Uh, getting him out of this position is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Uh, first of all, Joe himself uh, has always had delusions. He kind of thinks he's a Kennedy. Uh, and uh, secondarily, I remember when Senator Lindsey Graham said that, say whatever you like about Joe's politics, everybody who knows Joe thinks he's a nice guy. That's... I know at least two people who served in the Senate with him that told me he was a, a sanctimonious, uh, they used a, a curse word that starts with P, uh, that he was also not very good at the game, meaning normally in the U.S. Senate, when a member of your own party approaches you uh, with a piece of legislation or a matter that pertains to their state, uh, but because they're not on the relevant or important committee pertaining to the matter, uh, one senator does another senator a courtesy, introducing an amendment or scheduling a hearing. In Joe's case, Joe always wanted a quid pro quo. In other words, well, how, how much money can your interested parties in your home state give me in campaign contributions? Joe Biden was furious. L l let's listen to a couple of these bites. When I said, when I we pushed all these programs, I said, I'm going to be a president of everybody, whether you live in a red state or a green state. Mr. President, for months when you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, watch me. Watch Many me. American people have been watching, and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. To public that is not the judgment concerns. of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? Why, what is your answer to that question? Because I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. 
that that was Biden, folks. Uh, too hot for American politics and re-election. Here's uh, the president yet again. Something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because, in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad I let you speak. That's uh, that's that's my memory has gotten worse, Mr. President. My memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory. Take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. I've actually never seen anything quite like this in American politics. It reminded me when Richard Nixon had his bitter final press conference, and he said, "Well." Folks, just think what you'll be missing. You won't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. Uh, it is uh, uh, really extraordinary. Now, the real question is, what happens next? Uh, I think uh, the Democrats really have to consider uh, removing Joe Biden under the 25th Amendment. Let me explain how that works. Uh, to remove somebody, uh, a president, under the 25th Amendment, of the U.S. Constitution simply takes uh, the approval of a majority of the cabinet uh, plus the uh, the approval of the sitting vice president. That would be Kamala Harris. Now, in the event of a removal of the president under the 25th Amendment, which clearly can be done for the purposes of uh, mental capacity diminishment, a cognitive uh, decline, uh, the vice president, of course, becomes president. Given the fact that just in the last several weeks we have seen speculation in the press that Joe Biden uh, wants to dump Kamala Harris from his ticket and bring in Gretchen Whitmere, the governor of Michigan, uh, perhaps it would be a sweet irony if Kamala Harris now dumped Joe Biden. Now, I predicted on this very show just uh, a week ago uh, that Biden would not survive as the Democratic nominee, that Barack Obama, the de facto head of the Democratic Party, uh, would orchestrate uh, a situation in which they've cleared the field for Biden. He will roll through the primaries and caucuses essentially because he is unopposed very strange for people who keep braying about their commitment to democracy. And then just before the convention, uh, he will announce that be for reasons of health, he is not running. He will release his delegates, uh, let the convention work its will, uh, whereupon I have predicted that Michelle Obama will be reluctantly drafted for the Democratic nomination. Joel Gilbert, uh, who is a documentary filmmaker and author, actually joins us today in The Roger Stone Show to talk about exactly that, his amazing book, Michelle Obama 2024, uh, uh, and the companion documentary. Uh, he could never have foreseen the events uh, of the last week. Uh, really quite extraordinary. Uh, we will see how this plays out. I I've, I'm now 
as you're allowed to do in politics, revising my view, uh, I think in the end, Joe uh, absolutely cannot run. But he's not going to want to give up his authority to pardon uh, himself, uh, his brother, his son, and other members of the Biden crime family. Joe's epically stubborn, uh, so is uh, Dr. Jill. Uh, I suspect there is internecine warfare going on in the Democratic Party right now. People keep telling me, people who actually know her or know members of her staff, that Michelle Obama has zero interest uh, in running for president or being president. Uh, I believe that, actually. However, uh, I think when the party leaders uh, and the public uh, come to her in the 11th hour and say, look, you are the only person who can stop Donald Trump, that she will give in to what her husband wants her to do. Many people have seen that extraordinary video of Barack Obama being interviewed by Stephen Colbert, who was at one time funny, and he specifically says, you know, I've often thought it'd be great if I could just hang out in my basement uh, wearing sweats, uh, have a, a microphone, uh, there would be an earpiece for whoever the front man was, and I could basically have a third term. Uh, there it is, uh, folks. Uh, there is exactly uh, what is going on in America today. So we're going to watch this very c closely. And as I say, Joel Gilbert will be along uh, today's show to talk about it more extensively. Yesterday, right here at 77 WABC, uh, I had a classic uh, left-right confrontation with former Congressman Anthony Weiner. He, of course, represented the left. I represented the right. Uh, we talked about all the issues of the day, including the war uh, in the Middle East, the struggle over whether Donald Trump should be on the ballot that is currently before the U.S. Supreme Court, the uh, situation at our borders. You can go to the 77 WABC radio app, or you can go to wabcradio.com and listen to that incredible show. Uh, I certainly respect Anthony Weiner uh, as a very smart and aggressive debater. Uh, I thought it was lively, and I recommend it to you. The one thing we did not get to that I, we had hoped to was uh, the economy, uh, because I believe the Biden administration is really pulling a fast one. These job numbers that they have posted are completely bogus. They claim that there's a 353,000 net job gain, which is double their estimate, which was 180,000. In fact, last month, there was an exodus of 175,000 people from the labor force. In other words, they stop counting the people who are no longer looking for work. Now, get this, last December, that was 676,000 people who left the labor force and therefore are not counted in these new job numbers. So combining December and January, you have a total of 851,000 people left in the labor force. 
Now, normally, these people would have been counted as unemployed, but they are basically wiped out of the count because they haven't looked for work for at least four weeks. So the actual job losses uh, in the household survey uh, conducted uh, by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which calls itself the BLS, but should call itself the BS, was actually 714,000 job losses in that two-month period. So the unemployment rate, which they tell us is around 3.7%, would have certainly risen above 4. Uh, actually, if you account for these people who have left the labor force, looking at what they call the U6 unemployment rate, the actual unemployment number uh, in America today is 7.2%. The other big weakness in Bidenomics that they try to gloss over is the fact that although wage, wages have grown, the number of hours worked has plummeted to 34.1 per week. This is the lowest number of hours worked in 14 years. And that includes the depths of the pandemic. That means that the entire labor force is working one half hour less per week on average compared to a year ago. Why does that matter? Well, less hours worked, fewer hours worked, uh, is uh, actually uh, less take-home pay. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show, and we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is Roger Stone, and we're back at the Roger Stone Show. Don't touch that dial. Now would be an excellent time for you to go to the App Store and get the 77 WABC radio app. That way you won't miss any of the amazing programming we have here at 77 WABC. A big week in the courts uh, uh, over the last 10 days, actually. The Colorado case, which is uh, a case pertaining to Donald Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot, uh, was argued uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and Trump's critics are not very happy. That's because the Trump's lawyer uh, did an extraordinary job. Now, the the nut of this case uh, is an argument, which is a false narrative, uh, that Donald Trump is not eligible to be on the ballot because he, quote, engaged uh, in an insurrection. Yet he's not charged with insurrection. Uh, Jack Smith, uh, the special counsel, certainly has the authority uh, and certainly examined the events of January 6th. He has charged him with other crimes, but he has not charged him specifically with the crime of insurrection. 
the 14th Amendment, Article 3, uh, not only would, uh, uh, I think, require uh, a conviction uh, of insurrection, but additionally, it goes on to say that the act only refers to officers of the United States. Well, uh, under a 1998 Supreme Court decision, the president and the vice president are specifically not officers of the United States. Uh, this is really a blatantly anti-democratic move. Uh, and all those states that have had lawsuits seeking to remove Trump from the ballot will essentially ultimately be guided here by what the U.S. Supreme Court says. Uh, joining us today will be Trump impeachment lawyer David Schoen. To me, he is the single smartest lawyer uh, I've ever met, uh, and he has uh, thought about these issues very extensively. Uh, he makes a pretty good case that although the president's lawyers did a pretty good job, they missed a number of key arguments uh, in that presentation before the Supreme Court. Uh, then, of course, you have also the ongoing question uh, of presidential immunity. Uh, this has uh, not been as successful for the president. For those who may not remember, uh, Trump raised the question at the trial court level in D.C., saying that he had absolute immunity uh, for any act uh, that he performed as president. Uh, the, uh, the special counsel made a motion to, uh, after the court ruled against him, the special counsel made a motion to skip the appeals court and take it directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he, he was widely criticized for that. Mr. Smith uh, was attacked really by the editorial pages of the New York Times, even on CNN. His, his need for speed is obvious uh, in terms of the political motivations for having a trial before Election Day. Uh, the Supreme Court refused to take that matter, saying that it had to go first to the D.C. Court of Appeals. Now, that Trump lost in the D.C. Court of Appeals is not even remotely surprising. It is one of the most politicized uh, and uh, liberal courts in the country. Uh, actually, I would say partisan courts in the country. But I do think Trump's lawyer, uh, at Mr. Sauer of Missouri, uh, made an epic mistake when a minute and 58 seconds into his presentation, one of the three judges on the panel asked him whether if Trump had SEAL Team 6 uh, murder his political opponent uh, and then had SEAL Team 6 uh, assassinate any U.S. senator who uh, wanted to impeach Trump over that action, uh, would he have immunity? First of all, a good trial lawyer knows you don't answer hypothetical questions, but then secondarily, rather than saying, well, presidential immunity would only apply in the event of official acts within his capacity as president, uh, Mr. Sauer told the court that his answer was a qualified yes, wrong answer. Uh, this is uh, obviously uh, a more crucial issue than the Colorado ballot issue, in my opinion. I also understand the politics of the Supreme Court. These, they have become unduly political, so I can see them ruling for Trump, 
uh, on the ballot access issue, uh, but are then ruling uh, against him on the question of immunity. That would clear the way for a trial in D.C. Uh, on the events regarding the events of January 6th. Uh, we shall see. This is a long and tortured road. Uh, it remains clear from the results of the Nevada primaries uh, last Thursday that Donald Trump uh, swept all 26 delegates and got 97% of the vote. But also, folks, the turnout was heavy for the caucuses. So there was a preferential primary last Tuesday. Uh, you may have seen Nikki Haley ran in that. Uh, and more people voted essentially for none of the above than voted for Nikki Haley. It was almost two to one. Uh, that was what we call a beauty contest. It didn't award any delegates. There was no reason to compete. But then Haley did not compete in the Thursday Nevada Republican primary, uh, pardon me, the Nevada Republican caucuses in which actual delegates uh, were selected. It was a smashing victory for Trump. I sat back and lit up a big cigar from MyPatriotCigars.com, a sponsor of this show, one of our advertisers. By the way, these are great cigars, folks. Check them out at uh, MyPatriotCigars.com and be sure to use promo code STONE when you do. Now, uh, if you're thinking about getting a flu shot, well, you may want to think twice about that. Dr. Jane Ruby joins us on the show today to tell us what she has found out about uh, the next generation of flu shots and about her experience during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, that will be uh, a, a, a terrific piece uh, for the show. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, my friend Tucker Carlson, uh, really in a tour de force, uh, first of all, demonstrating by uh, interviewing Vladimir Putin uh, on his X platform and at Tucker Carlson Media, uh, that the old media is dead. Uh, it is estimated that he will have uh, as many as one billion viewers for this epic interview. We're going to talk about the interview later in the show. In the meantime, I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show, and, well, we'll be right back. We're back on The Roger Stone Show right here at 77 WABC Radio. Uh, I am really privileged today because my guest is David Schoen, to my mind, one of the most brilliant, incisive, creative, and strategic attorneys in the country. Uh, David Schoen uh, represented President Donald Trump in one of his two impeachment trials, uh, in which I thought, frankly, he was brilliant. Uh, he has received degrees from George Washington University, uh, where he got his Bachelor of Arts, Boston College of Law, uh, where in the law school he's a Juris Doctor, and then, of course, the Columbia University Law School as a Master of Laws. It is my great privilege to have David Schoen uh, on The Roger Stone Show. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you very much. So uh, a tumultuous uh, week for President uh, Donald Trump uh, in the courts, uh, actually a tumultuous two weeks. Uh, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, last 
weekend here on the Roger Stone Show, we talked about whether this presidential election was going to be decided at the ballot box or in the courts. The courts are <laughs> clearly going to play a, a key role here. A great uh, interview with the independent journalist uh, Matt Taibbi. Uh, let's start with the ballot access matter uh, before the courts, specifically the Colorado case, but it's emblematic of numerous uh, attempts in numerous states to prevent uh, Donald Trump's name from appearing on the ballot. Now, in your practice, uh, one of the things you have specialized in is ballot access, not necessarily for Republicans. You have represented uh, Democrats, uh, socialists, minor party candidates. In America, everybody's entitled to representation, folks. And David Schoen is a zealous advocate uh, on behalf of his clients. Tell us, David, what you thought about the arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court regarding uh, regarding Donald Trump's ballot access in Colorado. Well, it's a fascinating case, frankly, and uh, some of the amicus briefs that were filed uh, are actually well worth reading, uh, far more than the party's briefs, I would say. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, I, I said before the case was argued that I think it's a slam dunk. It should be a 9-0 decision for President Trump. Um, I certainly felt that way after the arguments could be one. Well, you never know how the votes are going to go, but it's certainly going to be a win for President Trump. Um, it, the lawsuits never should have been brought. There, these lawsuits in Colorado and elsewhere are primarily sponsored by this group crew with Norm Eisen and his crowd behind it. Trump haters, people who are obsessed with keeping Trump off the ballot, no matter uh, what the cost is. Um, I I think they harken back to a statement Jerry Nadler made in, con in the context of uh, considering impeachment against President Trump, in which he said, uh, we can't rely on the voters. We can't trust the voters to, uh, to put President Trump out. And so we, from that, they decided to use these extra ballot, extra um, uh, ordinary procedure measures to try to you know, attack President Trump. And Norm Eisen and his crew is obsessed with it. They've written a model prosecution memo for just about all of the prosecutions against him, including a memo uh, demanding that the Justice Department charge him with insurrection in D.C., which, of course, they didn't and couldn't and couldn't even meet the low threshold of probable cause for a grand, before a grand jury. And that's why I say, uh, among other reasons, Colorado case was frivolous, never should have been brought. It's an embarrassment to the Colorado Supreme Court justices who ruled against President Trump. Um, the issues are very clear. Um, and what I would say about the argument yesterday was uh, I saw a piece today that Alan Dershowitz wrote in which he said uh, President Trump's going to win the Colorado case despite his lawyers um, found their arguments inept. Uh, I would say that, you know, they, they were enough so that they didn't undercut. They didn't steal uh, the feet from the jaws of victory, put it that way. But there are some fascinating issues in the case that really weren't discussed at length yesterday and should have been. Uh, the NBC legal analyst, of course, uh, doesn't agree uh, with your view and the view of Dershowitz. Uh, I read a brilliant piece that you wrote in which you made a case that there were a number of key arguments that could have been made before the Supreme Court, uh, but weren't. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, I can tell you in a nutshell, first of all, the textual arguments that are made, that is whether the uh, Section 3 of the amendment uh, covers a president or a vice president, and whether a president is actually an officer, the language used in 
Section 3 of the 14th Amendment are fascinating arguments. And I think President Trump has the better side of that. I think, for example, uh, the legislative history supports the idea that president was not intended to be included in the bar that Section 3 presents. Um, it was included in an earlier draft, and then it was deleted. Um, and I think there's good reason for that. The time, at the time this section was passed, there was concerned about Confederate, concern about Confederate operatives getting in office. That concern was a regional one, and therefore, president and vice president, two national offices uh, elected across the country, weren't a concern uh, because the Confederates would be filtered out from those. I think that makes sense. There are two cases, 1888 and 2010, that say one's called U.S. versus Moat, one's called Free Enterprise Fund, that say a president is not an officer because it says that um, officers refer to appointed people, not elected people. So I think those arguments are great. But there are other sides to those arguments. What there's no other side to is the following. The Amendment 14, Section 3, has no process whatsoever. It just says somebody, you know, engaged in insurrection or rebellion can't hold office. They, uh, well, I'll get back to that in one second. But anyway, in 1869, Supreme Court Justice Salmon Chase sat on a case called in Griffin's case in which the issue came up. And what he concluded was this amendment language is not self-executing, meaning there has to be federal legislation that actually allows you to use this section to bar someone from office. That's consistent with Section 5 of the 14th Amendment also, which suggests that there can be legislation to effectuate these things. So if that's the case and there has to be federal legislation, uh, there are two answers. Either there is no federal legislation and therefore it can't be used, or there is federal legislation, and that's the insurrection statute, 18 U.S.C. 2383, that decidedly was not used to charge President Trump and for which President Trump has never been charged or convicted and couldn't be. If he had been charged with that federal legislation that one would argue was to give life to this section of the um, amendment, then he would have been entitled to all of the safeguards, constitutional guarantees that the Fifth and Sixth Amendments give. That right to a public trial, right to a jury trial, right to confrontation, right to call witnesses, all kinds of due process that's found, incorporated in the 14th Amendment itself. Um, and he would have been titled to a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Here in the amendment, we have absolutely no process. It doesn't tell you who's supposed to decide. Is it to be decided by this non-lawyer secretary of state in Maine or a single elected judge in Colorado or a group of elected judges? What's the burden of proof for finding insurrection? In the Colorado case, they relied on the January 6th committee report, which they found reliable. That's absurd. That was a sham committee improperly appointed, broke rule after rule of the House rules, had no ranking minority member for safeguard, and on and on and on. So that wasn't something to rely on. What rules of evidence applied? So we see there was no due process. And I say you don't have to look any further than the 14th Amendment itself to find this. And if you go on the other, the other way, Griffin's case is wrong, and there doesn't have to be federal legislation, it's self-executing, you have the same problem. We can't have one state deciding here's the process and we're going to kick off a candidate for president, which would skew the election around the country for other states. The United States Supreme Court spoke about the state interest in a national election in 1983 in the landmark case, John Anderson versus Celebrezzi out of Ohio. And the Supreme Court said a state has a lesser interest in a national election 
because the matter it's affecting has an impact across other state borders, and it's not fair to have one state have that kind of um, that kind of impact. And that's what one of the justices, Justice Kagan, asked about yesterday. You know, how can we allow one state to have this kind of impact? So. That, I think, ought to be a consensus argument, the process argument across the board for every civil libertarian uh, who should care about what kinds of rights, whether your name is Trump or otherwise, the process that we're entitled to before we stop a candidate for running from pres- for president or we stop a voter from exercising his or her First and Fourteenth Amendment rights to vote for a candidate of choice. Uh, David, what baffled me, however, is the president's lawyers seem to be arguing that this constitutional provision, while it, it it shouldn't bar him from being on the ballot, that it could bar him from actually holding the office, uh, which yeah. A, doesn't seem right to me, and B, I'm not sure why you would make that argument anyway. Uh, uh, theoretically, he could now go on the ballot, win the election, uh, and then face litigation over this same matter this with this same argument. Yeah, that's what I I was waiting for one of the justices to say to them, is this really what you want? Is this what you think President Trump wants? You want us to come up with a ruling that the reason the Colorado case is overturned is because the language of the of Section three bars a person from holding office, but not from being on the ballot. Therefore, he can be on the ballot and win. But then he could be barred from holding office. I, I was shocked that President Trump lawyers would have made that argument. It's a textually sound argument. You can make the argument from the text, but a good lawyer knows to distinguish between every argument that's available and the arguments that are appropriate that you want to use to win. First of all, a consensus argument is the best way to go ever with the Supreme Court that everybody can agree on and allows them to avoid some difficult questions. But in this case, you can just imagine if that argument prevailed, then you would see after the election, President Trump wins, all of the blue states would move, move immediately to bar him from becoming president, and they would cite his own lawyer uh, who said, well, actually, the amendment bars you from, from uh, holding office, uh, and therefore we'll have to revisit that. In fact, during the, elect- during the argument yesterday, you know, he suggested at some point, I think in, re- in answer to Justice Gorsuch, but I'm not, I don't remember if that's exactly what it was, that you know, that's something that would have to be considered down the road because maybe uh, the Congress would – because there's a provision, you know, for Congress to uh, remove this impediment, maybe the Congress would act in. There's no way on earth President Trump would have approved that kind of argument if he had been told it was being made and understood those, uh, the impact of it. And he's a very savvy guy. Uh, David, have you had an opportunity to read Special Counsel Robert Hur's uh, report regarding President Joe Biden's retention of classified and top secret documents? I'm familiar with it. I haven't read every page of it, but I'm familiar with the highlights. That's for sure. Uh, and and those us. highlights clearly were mis- misconstrued last night in President Biden's uh, uh, representation of them. Uh, both his representation, but also in a blistering statement put out by the office uh, of the White House legal counsel, essentially trying to r- rewrite the facts. Uh, this is not about disrespecting the memory of Joe Biden's late son, Bo Biden. Uh, they use that as a political shield. Of course. How dare they ask about that? Uh, but it yeah. was also interesting to me that the author that Biden was working with 
who had been given access to these classified documents for a book destroyed all of his tapes when he learned that there was going to be an investigation. That's a destruction of evidence. I would have thought that that would have merited a prosecution, but uh, evidently not. This is once again the, the two-tiered justice system. Yeah, we, we see this double standard time and time again. And of course, this, you know, trying to turn things around with President Biden crying on the stage last night and all of that and trying to make this about whether he remembered his son's death and what he does every Memorial Day and all that. That's a classic, you know, sort of uh, shifting ma manner of argumentation and all that. But I don't know that anybody bought it. Of course, it's a tragic thing that his son died, but that, that's not what this is about. And the report makes it quite clear that this wasn't sort of just a momentary lapse. This was, you know, an ongoing pattern during that interview, and he kind of missed it by years. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back with uh, Trump impeachment lawyer and criminal defense attorney David Schoen. All right, folks, we're back. It's the Roger Stone Show. If you're just tuning in, we're here with David Schoen. Uh, to my mind, one of the most brilliant incisive, creative, and strategic attorneys uh, in the country. Uh, we're talking about the events of the last several weeks uh, pertaining to American politics and both Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, David, we also had, uh, not uh, that many days ago, uh, arguments uh, in the uh, D.C. appeals court uh, in which uh, Trump's lawyers uh, made what I thought was a uh, uh, a less than stellar argument regarding his right to presidential immunity. Now, uh, based on my study of this, if in fact the Supreme Court now, which we assume will hear that case, Trump has now lost at the trial court level, has lost at the appeals court level. Uh, if the Supreme Court hears that uh, and were to wipe away presidential immunity, it would seem to me that President Barack Obama could be prosecuted for using drones in the murder of American citizens or conducting warrantless and illegal searches of, oh, I don't know, Tucker Carlson and uh, James Rosen of Fox News, who was under surveillance when he was covering the Obama White House. Uh, case goes. Well, I'm concerned that the Supreme Court might not take it, frankly. Uh, it's a very long, detailed opinion, and they may not want to wade into this quagmire. Um, to be clear, the case essentially says there is no categorical uh, immunity or immunity, uh, a categorical immunity for, from criminal prosecution, uh, even for official action. Uh, so it differs from the earlier case of Nixon versus Fitzgerald which said that there is civil immunity from civil lawsuits for a president um, for official acts taken during the uh, term in office, even once that president is out of office, as President Nixon was when that case came through the pipeline. Um, it's a, it can be a very dangerous opinion, this opinion, uh, for reasons you've pointed out. Um, uh, Nixon could have been prosecuted for Vietnam decisions, LBJ, same thing. Vietnam decisions, if you know, someone decides that this constituted a war crime, even though it was an official action. And so I do think there's a very real uh, problem of chilling important and decisive presidential action here. 
when it's limited to the official acts. But I have to say this again, you know, it's very easy to be an armchair critic of other lawyers. But, you know, I think most reasonable commentators said this at the time. There is a problem when you come in and make extreme arguments that are not necessary to your thesis um, or to winning the case. And that's how I felt about Mr. Sauer's argument that uh, to the hypothetical question the judge asked, well, how about if uh, the president, while acting as president, called in SEAL Team 6 to conduct a hit on a political opponent? And his answer was, oh, yes, the same theory applies. Um, You couldn't charge him criminally unless he were impeached and convicted, which is kind of a a really roundabout argument because it it requires – a negative inference from the impeachment uh, language in the, in the Constitution, um, and uh, this theory that, that that's required first before uh, there can be a criminal prosecution. The simple answer to that was, that's not an official act. And then you can stay consistent with the theme that it's official acts that are covered by civil and criminal immunity. Um, that's a very logical and reasonable theory. I felt the same thing yesterday, quite frankly, when the one of the justices said, well, you know, you say we don't know about proving insurrection. What if an, a person walked in and said, hi, I'm an insurrectionist. Um, hi, I'm an insurrectionist. Now, could that person be barred from holding office? And the answer was, uh, no, Congress would first have to act. I don't think that's necessarily the answer to that, and it's not a necessary answer to it. Um, it can be that uh, there's a process for this, and when a person admits to being an insurrectionist, then we're not worried about the burden of proof and so on. That person could be barred from holding office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That's a reasonable answer to that without taking an extreme position. Again, I don't think anything they he, he said yesterday or could have said yesterday is going to steal uh, – defeat from the jaws of victory. President President Trump will win this case, as I've told him over and over again, uh, just about no matter what. It's a frivolous case. But anyway, the point is, I don't think that we need to make extreme arguments when the law and the facts are on our side, and we have reasonable arguments that can win. Uh, David, uh, in the time we have left, uh, former Attorney General Ed Meese has filed an amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court in which he argues Uh, that special counsel Jack Smith's appointment is flawed, that it is not uh, legally valid uh, because uh, he was not a sitting U.S. attorney. His appointment uh, has uh, never been approved by the U.S. Senate. Uh, I'm bastardizing this. Uh, Tell us what the argument is uh, and uh, whether you think it has any potential impact uh, on the situation. Well, this is another fascinating argument. I I love it, frankly. Um, I think it's, again, uh, technically and textually sound. There's an excellent law review article on it uh, called Why Robert Mueller's Appointment as Special Counsel Was Unlawful. Two scholars, Steve Calabrese and Gary Lawson, wrote in 2019 that explain this in detail. But essentially, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution is called the Appointments Clause, and that tells us how uh, officers in the government are appointed. We have superior officers, inferior officers, and so on. The point that these authors make, and I think they're right, this is the argument, it's kind of a three-part argument, that there's no statute in place originally uh, to give rise to um, this office of special counsel properly constituted. Um, 
secondly, that even if that's not a problem for you, that uh, whether he's an inferior officer, the special counsel, uh, that the appointment process wasn't authorized for that. And clearly they say he's not an inferior officer. He's a superior officer, can only be authorized by presidential appointment um, and confirmation by the Senate, and that that was never done. Um, these regulations for special counsel giving rise to this kind of iteration uh, were put together by Neil Cadiel, who you now see on MSNBC and who's been for days saying what a slam dunk the Colorado case was for Colorado, and there are no arguments on the other side and so on. Is now blaming the lawyers and blaming the justices for why it looks like they're going to lose. But anyway, put these regulations in. And the point of these uh, scholars are is that uh, the special counsel is simply not uh, properly appointed as a matter of law. And therefore, Jack Smith's or Mueller's actions are unconstitutional and the indictments that he brought cannot stand. The problem is right now in the D.C. case, which is kind of in the fore of discussion, the issue was never raised. And the, uh, the Court of Appeals, this is extraordinary, the Court of Appeals, D.C. Circuit, wrote to the lawyers ahead of time and said, I want you to be, be prepared to discuss the issues raised in the Mies amicus brief, the issue you just raised, that the special counsel, Jack Smith, was not properly appointed. When asked to do so, Mr. Sauer said, in arguing for President Trump, well, uh, we haven't raised that argument uh, so far in this case. That was pretty shocking, since I think the president was under the impression that the, ar the argument uh, was, should have been raised and was raised. But now we see in the opinion from the D.C. Circuit denying the immunity claim, on the last page they write in a footnote that this argument was raised by the court, it was in the Mies brief, and unfortunately it was never raised in the district court, and it's not before this court, and therefore even if they could consider it on appeal as a collateral order, they can't, because there's no argument raised below by, the, by President Trump uh, to, to even consider by the district court or the court of appeals. So we'll see. It's got to be raised in the Florida case also. Uh, I'm very familiar with the argument. In my particular case, uh, a witness the government wanted to testify, a fellow who had worked for me, Andrew Miller, had his own counsel, obviously, did not want to testify. Uh, he raised this issue. The trial court, of course, a trial court judge, of course, rejected it. He took it to the D.C. Court of Appeals. They also rejected it. Uh, he did not appeal to the Supreme Court, but it was immaterial. Uh, he was never called to testify at my trial. I don't know of anything he could have said that would have been uh, meaningful or detrimental or helpful to the government's case either for that fact. But it seems to me that the D.C. court would just point uh, to uh, that decision in that circuit and say this has already been decided here, no? Well, Judge Howell, who was then the chief, uh, chief judge in the district court, wrote a lengthy opinion uh, denying uh, this claim in a case. Um, it was working its way up in another defendant's case, but it got uh, derailed. And the D.C. Circuit just summarily kind of affirmed Judge Howell. These scholars consider all of that, and they say she was just wrong, uh, number one. Number two, it has to be fully developed. And number three, in the Florida case, you've got the 11th Circuit, not the D.C. Circuit. They're not bound by it. And again, they, I'm telling you, this is a multi-multi-page article in careful detail by two careful scholars spelling this out. All right. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank David Schoen, a criminal defense attorney uh, and a brilliant analyst who what is that rare lawyer who understands the intersection of both law, media, politics, 
uh, and the public arena. David, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you. Always a great show. Thank you very much. We're back. This is the Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC Radio. Folks, now would be a great time for you to go to the App Store and grab that 77 WABC Radio app so you never miss any of the amazing programming that we have here at 77 WABC. This is the radio station I grew up with, uh, and it is one of the most powerful AM radio stations in the country, bringing you extraordinary programming and entertainment, whether it is uh, Larry Kudlow, uh, who uh, gives you the economic breakdown on Saturdays, or Dominic Carter, who tells you about the pulse of New York City, uh, my friend uh, Frank Morano, if for those who are uh, night owls, America's mayor, uh, Rudy Giuliani, one of the greatest Americans uh, of the 20th century. There's so much great programming here at 77 WABC. You don't want to miss any of it. So go to the App Store now and download it to your cell phone. You'll be glad you did. Joining us now is Dr. Jane Ruby. Jane Ruby is a medical economist, a healthcare researcher, and a pharmaceutical development expert. Uh, she is a graduate of the University of Rochester. Uh, Jane Ruby holds two doctoral degrees in education and psychology and two master's degrees in nursing and international health economics. Uh, she is widely published and she is the hostess of her own show. Uh, we are delighted to have a health freedom advocate Dr. Jane Ruby, join us today on The Roger Stone Show. Hi, Roger. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I uh, saw you, I guess it seems like uh, a month ago now, things are moving so quickly, but you gave an excellent presentation uh, on um, your experience with the COVID-19 vaccinations, what, what did transpire, what's happening now. Uh, you also uh, issued kind of a warning uh, regarding those who may be considering taking the flu shot. Now, like you, uh, when you're for health freedom, that means, well, that the average individual should decide for themselves. If someone wants to take the COVID-19 vaccination uh, and then wants to take a booster, they have every right to do that. I choose not to do it. Those in my family choose not to do it. Uh, but uh, I guess our real fundamental problem is the fact that there are those in government uh, who think uh, it should be mandatory. So let's kind of start uh, from the beginning. From your point of view, um, what is your critique of the COVID-19 vaccinations that were rolled out uh, that may certainly affected the presidential election and uh, the entire course of the United States. Yeah, I, and I fully agree with you on um, everything you just laid out. I'm all for freedom of choice as well. The problem I have, Roger, is that in order to make a free choice, you need to be completely informed on the risks and benefits, and that was never the case here. And then you add to that the mandatory, the mandates, either through private employers or across the government and across our military. And, and then you add further insult by recognizing that these are experimental, which means they have not completed 
full the full normal standard for for efficacy and safety trials. So just laying it all all out there with the lack of informed consent, you know, a checklist that just says, hey, you might have a little fever after this is not an informed consent. Those documents are generally 10 to 15 pages long. They list every risk. And so that you you can make that final decision um, being completely informed. That was missing. It was it was actually kept back from people. And yeah, I'm very concerned that the materials in these shots, which by the way, have never been ready for prime time in humans, are now being developed. Uh, I say, I use the word loosely, developed, uh, without going through the usual FDA oversight and the required uh, phases of, of human research trial uh, procedures. They're being incorporated into what, what people recognize as a, the seasonal flu shot which becomes very dangerous because people think, well, I'm not going to take a COVID shot, but I'll take the seasonal flu shot because I, I do that every year or, you know, grandma does that every year. And overarching, Roger, the concern I have is that these were never about public health. These are bioweapons. These were gain of function on what probably was some existing coronavirus, which is the common cold virus, uh, that, that can mutate over, over years. But we're talking about something that was developed um, to really force your body to make the disease-causing part of a cold virus. And this is all done synthetically in a lab. And again, the top of the food chain that we've seen from the evidence is that this is all coming from a, a Department of Defense program uh, to, to cause uh, depopulation and injury uh, and, and future generations to suffer a permanent change in the human genome. So I know I threw a lot out there, but but that's really really what people need to understand. So uh, let me just ask you directly, based on your research, what is uh, in uh, these uh, vaccinations, and uh, how does it basically change your body chemistry? Very very good question. Um, the 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 challenge in answering that is that the evidence shows and the, the FOIA documents and all the, all the documentation that's been reviewed so far shows uh, that we don't really know what is in the shot on any given day in any geographic location uh, and, and even within the same lot number. And that's because Pfizer was able to wrangle an agreement with the European Medicines Agency, which is the equivalent of the US FDA, and I believe it was it was grandfathered by the FDA that there was a 50 percent non-disclosure uh, agreement. Well, that means that they at any given time they can change it up. They don't need permission. I mean, Roger, in my 20 years in the pharmaceutical industry, we couldn't change the color on a box of pills without going through a procedure, submitting a package and getting approval by the FDA to make those visual changes. These people are able to apparently uh, change it up. Uh, we know that they've admitted that there is a synthetic, in other words, created in a lab, a genetic a code that is actually artificial. It's not using natural or organic uh, genetic material. That's problem number one. It's taken from macaque monkeys, aborted fetal cells, uh, and a host of other things we don't even know about. And, and that code is supposedly directing the human body to make the spike protein, which is the antigen, the, the part that makes you sick on a, on a coronavirus. Um, and so making that on the inside of the body, 
that's not where invaders are blocked by your immune system. Your immune system is looking outward. So you have this toxin being self-produced. This is why people are sick, why they're dropping dead, why, why, why some of them have neurological problems. They can't walk across the room. It's why some of our elite fighter pilots are being grounded. They have chest pain, pressure. I mean, it's, it's a mess. There's been a mess created. And, Roger, here's why I think it's intentional. In this industry, if something came out publicly, something untoward about one of our products, the companies went crazy. PR came, got involved. No one was able to say anything. We were supposed to direct everybody to our, our, our communications office. Um, nobody has said a word about the growing death and destruction. You don't see a pharmaceutical company like Pfizer or Moderna coming out and saying, oh, hey, I'm really sorry. Uh, let us look into that. Oh, gee, uh, that should never have happened. And I worked for a company in the 2000, early 2000s where they got shut down for two years when six beagle dogs died in the preclinical phases. And we were not allowed to go on to human trials until we figured out what that cause was. Now you contrast that to today where people are, uh, everybody knows people that have died from these shots and that are disabled. And the companies aren't saying a word. They don't care about the PR. So to me, that tells me that they're part of something that is an intentional program. Uh, it, it is interesting, even today, that you still see news uh, uh, about the entire question, about the, particularly the rise in, in rare cancers, the, the strange uh, clotting that has been found uh, in those who've taken uh, the vaccination, but you really only see it in alternative media. You're never going to see this uh, uh, covered, you know, uh, on Fox or CNN or any of the national networks. It is still shocking to me when I look at public uh, opinion research polls uh, showing that in many cases, as many as uh, 70, 68, 70% of the people say that they believe that the vaccinations were both safe and effective. Uh, now, that could obviously be based to a great degree on people's individual uh, experience. In other words, no one wants to say, oh my God, I took this vaccination and maybe I haven't. But uh, is there not in fact a, a, an actual spike in uh, in rare cancers, uh, in heart problems, and, and so on? Absolutely. And one of the first signs that I think the public uh, could really discern from that is when the three DOD whistleblowers, that was Dr. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Teresa Long, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Pete Chambers, and uh, Major Dr. Sam Sigaloff, revealed, came out as whistleblowers and showed the DMED data, which was it's a pristine database for injuries and healthcare inside the military. I say pristine because only doctors, physicians, uh, military physicians can add to it. And they saw increases by hundreds of percentiles uh, higher than the last you know, averages from the last five to ten years in inside the military and in those service members who were uh, who were who taken the shot. Uh, of course, under under duress. Um, you mentioned the clots. There, I'm I'm the person who broke the worldwide, like in a worldwide exclusive. Nobody else would touch it. Uh, in January of 2022, there was an embalmer, board certified, 20 year experience, who started trying to embalm people and couldn't get his instruments in, and was pulling out these white fibrous clots. 
Uh, these these clots are, have been shown they're not blood clots. They're not even human tissue. Uh, they're metallic. Uh, they're they're based in in very rare metals like cesium uh, um, and radioactive materials. Really strange. Um, and and we've done a lot of analysis, or or some of the people that I'm working with have done analysis on that. The cancers are exploding, and this this makes perfect sense because uh, we know that those folks who mapped uh, some of the Pfizer and Moderna vial material when they found genetic material. They found that inside of this material, they see the evidence of cancer promoters and uh, certain codes that will tell the body not to stop cancer growth. This is probably the foundation for why you're hearing about all these, these cancers. And I would say to you that one other thing, the reason people aren't hearing about this in mainstream media is because the pharmaceutical industry owns mainstream media. It's, I call it the military-industrial-pharmaceutical complex. Um, every uh, every other commercial on Fox News is brought to you by Pfizer. So when you have that kind of power, uh, you you can block the information from from getting out through the mainstream. Uh, a question that, that I asked you the other day, which still interests me, uh, is: mm. Do you think that different batches uh, of the COVID nineteen vaccination made by various manufacturers? Uh, had different ingredients that some of them may have been more benign while others may have been technically uh, more dangerous? Is that, am I a conspiracy theorist or is that, uh, is that possible? It's not only possible, but it's actually proven. And I'll tell you how. There's a group called uh, Team Enigma. Uh, that's uh, their medical director is the former uh, Pfizer uh, chief of uh, clinical ops. Uh, Dr. Michael Yeadon, uh, some great analysts like uh, Craig Parta Cooper, uh, Sasha Latipova. What they found when they looked, they took batch, you know, lot numbers, Roger, and they they looked at the reports in VAERS of the, the specific, was it a death, was it an injury, was it a, a myocarditis, uh, and what they did was they plotted it all out. When they did the statistics, this is the interesting part, that the 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 spikes in in occurrences within the same lot number could not be explained by variances in the statistics. The only possible explanation was that there were different materials even within the same lot number. And here's the other scary part. The um, part of their group has a, a an underground ethical hacker group that got into the Pfizer and Moderna back systems, not their websites, they were able to establish proof that the companies set, each company sets how many doses will be in a lot number in that lot cohort. And Pfizer and Moderna set them at about 1.5 million doses. So when you think about it, within a lot number, many of these vials have not been deployed yet. They might not even have been manufactured yet, but they'll put the same lot number on them, and they can freely, as I said before, because of the 50% non-disclosure, they'll be able to put in whatever they want. So you're not a conspiracy theorist at all. Uh, That is 100% true and proven. And it's very frightening because there's more death and destruction to come. Uh, Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC, and we're here with health freedom advocate Dr. Jane Ruby. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. This is The Roger Stone Show. I'm your genial host, and we're still with Dr. Jane Ruby, uh, health freedom advocate uh, and uh, 
brilliant medical researcher. Uh, Jane, you recently essentially uh, issued a clarion call about the, the next generation of flu vaccinations. You pointed to uh, an audio. Uh, f- tell, me, tell us who this is from. Sure. Uh, I always say, don't take my word for it. Take, take the word of the criminals. So the CEO of Pfizer, uh, most people know him uh, by now. Uh, he's a veterinarian by training. His name is Albert Borla. And he made a statement in an interview a year ago this January at, at Davos. He was asked, well, will you have a flu va- uh, vaccine using this mRNA technology? Um, and he said, yes, we'll have it by mid-2023. Uh, so it was already in play. They've announced it on their website, Roger. I don't know if you uh, would like to play that Actually, we're, we're going we're to play that clip right now. You raised it. Yeah. Where are you in developing? Because I know, I think that's what you were originally doing with BioNTech. You were yes. developing mRNA for flu. Where yeah. are you on a flu vaccine based on mRNA? Oh, the studies are running. They have completely recruited. We are waiting for cases as they accumulate. It means that people have been vaccinated. Placebo vaccine. And now the disease, some of them will get disease. And then we are waiting to unblind the data to see what is coming. I think we'll come in the, this year, in 23. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, you can't guarantee a timeline depending on the clinical trials. No. No, because but you, your best guess, what would you think? Uh, I think uh, by the first half of the year, maybe. First half of the year? Yeah, June, July. Wow. And, and so are, how far are we away from one vaccine that's both COVID and flu together? First, we need to have a flu. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if we have a flu, already we started uh, uh, experiments to combine the two. Uh, so that we don't lose time again. Uh, I think we'll, we'll come more or less all together if it is successful. So, uh, Dr. Ruby, essentially what you're saying is that it's potentially possible that if someone elected, and by the way, it's your choice, folks, uh, but if you elected to take a flu shot, it could actually theoretically change your DNA. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes, I think that's pretty much established, Roger. And in fact, both Moderna and Pfizer have uh, literature on their websites proudly boasting that, uh, that they are hacking uh, the order of life, that they are able to change it. They claim it's for the good. They claim that it'll be able to go into your own system, turn off your bad genes. I'll, I'll oversimplify it. Turn off your bad genes and maybe direct your genes to do better things. Well, that's great in a science fiction movie, but the technology is nowhere near ready for prime time on that. It just doesn't exist. And in spite of that, the FDA has guidance documents published for industry that go back as far as 15 years ago, warning these companies, you don't know where it's going, you don't know how to turn it off, you better do adequate preclinical with animals before you even begin to do this in humans. And then all of a sudden, the light switch changed in 2020 with the COVID, you know, hoax. And all of a sudden, it was approved, it was it was authorized. And you have to understand, this is still an, a very experimental and a very known dangerous uh, technology. It's not a drug. It's actually a medical device. Gene editing therapy is a medical device. You are a genetically modified organism if you indeed, if you got a shot uh, for COVID-19. And if, I have to have this other caveat, if you got that material, because remember, we don't know And, of course, you mentioned before, some people didn't have any reactions at all. Maybe their families, their communities, 
Uh, this is designed, I believe, to create what's called advocates. People who say, I took it, it's great, don't worry about it, go take it. And to, and to assuage the, the panic uh, or the anxiety and the hesitancy um, in, in, the, in the public. So, yeah, that's a big, big concern because th- they don't know how to get it out, Roger. Nobody knows how to stop it. Uh, for those who did get the genetic modification, and it's going to Dr. Daniel Nagasi, who's a molecular biologist, has been on my show several times and has explained uh, that this is, is, is permanent. And it, through a process uh, called reverse transcriptase, which is kind of like God's way of shaking up the gene pool every other generation, this is going to continue down through the generations and unfortunately cause a lot of medical and health problems and stillbirth and infertility. Uh, Dr. Ruby, if people want to see your show, where can they go to do that and when? Sure. Thanks, Roger. I upload all of my shows uh, six days a week to my Rumble channel. Uh, that's rumble.com forward slash Dr. Jane Ruby. I'm very active on Twitter and my website, uh, drjaneruby.com, does uh, have the uploading of, of the, the current shows all the time, plus a lot of other hopefully valuable information for the public. So I hope, hope everybody will visit. Uh, a question that I have uh, wanted to ask for some time, this is uh, your opinion, based on everything you know. Uh, they were very, very aggressive here in Florida uh, in terms of requiring people to wear masks. Uh, mm. Do you believe that the masks afforded any modicum uh, of protection uh, against the contraction of COVID-19? No, and I'll, I'll give you a nice example uh, really quick. Um, with the human eye, you can look very closely at a mask and you can see the crosshairs of the fibers. If you then think about an electron microscope, which is the only way you're going to be able to see any kind of viral material, much less a spike that is a smaller piece off of some coronaviruses, um, you need an electron microscope. It's not anywhere near visible to the human eye. So people have used the analogy that I love. It's like trying to stop mosquitoes with a chain link fence. It's ridiculous. And Roger, let me say this, because I do have a clinical background working in hospitals, uh, ORs, car- uh, cardiac nurse practitioner. I've assisted in, in uh, bypass graft surgeries. The only time we ever wore masks was either in the OR, and that was so that we didn't reflexively sneeze into an open sterile cavity while somebody's body's open, and the other time we used it was when we were uh, protecting people who were immunosuppressed uh, because they just had organ transplant and we strip, you know, they were chemically stripped of all of their immune function. Um, and even that was just a gross protection. Uh, we never wore them around respiratory infection patients or any other kind of contagious situation. I knew right away this was a hoax. It was designed to demean people, to get them under control, and actually to test our compliance which I, I, to be honest with you, I was very disappointed in the number of Americans that actually succumbed out of fear to, to these ridiculous measures. Yeah, I, I, it's very interesting. I'm not sure what would happen in the country uh, were we to have uh, a, another pandemic if the government had moved back into the same mode of urging people to, uh, to shelter at home, to wear masks, to get a vaccination. Uh, because I think you and I, and the circle of people that we associate with are somewhat more attuned to it. And we're also looking at alternative media. Uh, there still seems to be to be a large number of people 
who haven't done any research on this at all, who have just kind of blindly said, well, the government said it's good for me. The, the government says uh, if I take it, I won't uh, get sick. Uh, I don't know that, uh, that this wouldn't, I hate to say this, but work a second time, make billions of dollars for this pharmaceutical industry and conceivably put you know certain citizens at risk. I, I share that concern with you. Uh, and to be honest with you, I don't think people understand that this is a program. This is a war. Uh, I've had to resign myself, Roger, to the fact that there will be losses. There will be collateral damage. There will be those people who still believe in the government as much as possible. They haven't read the signs and the symptoms properly, and they will go down because of it, and their families will suffer. Um, we just continue to go forward and try to get as much information out as possible. That That's really the focus of my work. I, I, I try to, to do as much education as I can in my shows because I think it does give people something to think about. But we have to resign ourselves to the fact that we're going to lose a fair number of people uh, by this compliance. Um, it's, it's really sad. It's, it's, it's sad that people don't understand that this government is way out of control, it's too big, and it's not here for our good. Uh, I know that you have uh, been uh, sued in a massive uh, civil action uh, because of your public views uh, on this question. Uh, and I also understand that that $25 million litigation was recently dismissed. Can you tell us about that real quickly? Sure. Uh, I was uh, sued. I've been harassed, to be honest with you, in social media for over two years by the self-proclaimed inventor of the mRNA uh, vaccine, which is, those are his words, Robert Malone. But he actually filed a lawsuit against myself and uh, Dr. Peter Bregan and his wife, Ginger Bregan, last year, each of us for $25 million um, for a false uh, defamation uh, matter that was actually dismissed, thank God, on December 11th, believe it or not, by a uh, Clinton federally appointed federal judge. So even he saw the ridiculousness of, of the lawsuit. But remember, uh, even an innocent person, and I know you know this better than anybody, has to spend a lot of money to defend themselves. And so this little fiasco cost each of us probably about seventy-five dollars to $100,000 to defend. And um, thank God we did get it dismissed, or he would have dragged us through the courts for years to come. Uh, it's important to remember and to ask, why would somebody who pretends to be on our side uh, actually be suing other health freedom warriors? So there's something amiss there. And since then, Roger, by the way, he has continued, as I said, to harass me in social media, uh, besmirch my reputation, my credentials, uh, uh, over, accuse me of, of uh, just misogynist types of accusations that I've oversexed myself. <laughs> I just can't even believe it. And this is after the case was dismissed. So we'll have to see what happens. But uh, he actually did defame me. Uh, that's really funny. But um, I think it's more important to focus on going forward. And hopefully he puts these shenanigans to rest. Uh, but we'll have to see what happens. All right, Dr. Jane Ruby, your website, one more time. drjaneruby.com, uh, and, and the shows are all uploaded to Rumble. It's Dr. Jane Ruby on Rumble. Thank you so much for, for having me back, Roger. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Dr. Jane Ruby, thank you for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. 
Welcome back. This is Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Joining us on the show today, uh, documentary filmmaker and author Joel Gilbert. Uh, Joel Gilbert uh, has now for over two years uh, predicted that Michelle Obama, former First Lady of the United States, uh, would be the Democratic candidate for president in 2024. Uh, I am also among the handful of people who have predicted this uh, coming political development. As I said earlier in the show, I stand by my prediction. In fact, if anything, based on the events late last week, uh, I find it more likely uh, than ever. Uh, Joel Gilbert, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Hi, Roger. Great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, it really is uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, you and I were kind of like uh, uh, very early on this, uh, canaries in the proverbial coal mine. Uh, since then, uh, Cindy Adams, who has a great show right here at 77 WABC, uh, is among those who say that their own sources tell them that uh, Michelle Obama will ultimately be a candidate for president. Uh, that list uh, of folks uh, jumping on board has gotten longer and longer. Bill O'Reilly uh, now uh, says that it is the case. Uh, Joel, who else is who else has come to the conclusion that you and I reached some time ago? Well, quite a few. Monica Crowley was an early one that understood that Michelle Obama is a political animal, and she's more political than Barack. Uh, a lot of people had bought in and still buy into her excuse or the public excuse that she hates politics. Well. All politicians hate politics, you know. Uh, they just love the power part of it. So even Karl Rove, who hasn't been relevant in 20 years, said on uh, Varney and Company on Fox News just two days ago, he said it definitely won't be Joe Biden, but Michelle hates politics, it won't be her. So the, the mainstream is slowly coming around. Glenn Beck, of course, came out uh, saying it'll be Michelle, Dick Morris. A lot of these pundits, are Megyn Kelly, are finally realizing it, but it's taken a lot of... Uh, exposure of Joe Biden's uh, weaknesses and the fact that, uh, especially based on the events of late last week, that everyone in the public electorate now understands it's going to be Donald Trump versus Kamala Harris because no one thinks Biden will last another term if reelected, and there's no way the Democrats will allow that to be the case. It's going to be Michelle Obama. Yeah, for those uh, who may have missed our earlier discussion, late last week, uh, Special Counsel Robert Herr who was appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland to investigate uh, Joe Biden's handling of classified and top secret documents uh, from largely his days as a vice president, since uh, he would be entitled to have them today, but would not be entitled as vice president to ever retain such documents, that, that privilege being legally preserved for the president. Uh, her uh, essentially determined uh, that Biden had, in fact, retained documents he wasn't supposed to have. In other words, uh, a violation of the law. Uh, but he also said in his final report uh, that uh, Biden was, let me get this exact words, he, he said that he was a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Uh, and based on that, it was hers assessment that it would be unlikely for a jury to convict Biden for the illegal act of handling 
his classified documents. Uh, but it, uh, Biden's response, actually, I think, added fuel to the fire. In other yep. words, uh, President yep. Biden had an immediate press conference. I'm sure everybody who worked for him was holding their breath, and he basically had a, a, a hissy fit, which he said, uh, I'm well-meaning, I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president. I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. Well, uh, my memory's fine, he said. My memory's, uh, take a look what I've done since I became president. How did that happen? I guess I just forgot what was going on. I assume that was sarcastic. Uh, but then in that same performance uh, in the press conference, uh, he couldn't remember where he got the rosary uh, that he said he wore in remembrance of his late son. He referred uh, to the, uh, the president of Iran as the president of Mexico. Uh, I think he hurt himself uh, by the tone, if nothing else. This was a very, very angry man, uh, and I think he has a gigantic problem. I, I think he does, and when you see the mainstream corporate media coming out against Biden, you kind of know that it's over. I thought CNN's MJ Lee destroyed Joe Biden at that press conference with her question. She said, they say you were too old, Mr. President. In December, you told me you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. Why does it have to be you now? So when that type of media jumps on board, uh, it's the beginning of the end, I think. Let me correct myself. Uh, Biden referred, was speaking about the president of Egypt, uh, but he referred to him as the president of Mexico. It's the same Joe Biden who only days ago said in 1996, uh, when he went to one of the G7 meetings, that he met uh, uh, Prime Minister Mitterrand of Germany. Uh, and the problem with that is twofold. Uh, Mitterrand was dead in 1996, and of course, he had served previously uh, to his death as the leader of the, uh, the nation of France. Uh, but hey, uh, it's Joe Biden. I, I, I really think now, uh, this really, if anything, it accelerates the move to find a more electable, more uh, acceptable candidate. Uh, I said earlier in the show that I thought that ultimately the Democrats would have to consider uh, removing Joe Biden under the 25th Amendment. Uh, that is a process by which a majority of the cabinet, uh, with the uh, approval of the vice president, uh, can remove the president for reasons uh, of health or mental uh, capacity. Uh, that would make Kamala Harris president uh, far more malleable uh, to the Bidens. Uh, Joe Biden's known for his history in the Senate for being extraordinarily stubborn. This is the job he has always wanted. His wife really enjoys the, uh, the pomp and ceremony of it all. Uh, I think they're going to have a very hard time now uh, getting him to voluntarily step away. And I think the need for them to do so is greater now than it has ever been based on these recent revelations. Okay, well, I can comment. Look, uh, Biden is trying to have it both ways. On the one hand, he can't be prosecuted because he's too senile, he's too feeble, he can't remember anything. But uh, he wants to stay in office. He either has to be removed from office with the 25th Amendment, or he has to be prosecuted. You can't have it both ways. Uh, but I think it is the official beginning of the end of, of Joe Biden's candidacy in 2024. And I've made the case that I believe Michelle Obama has expertly positioned herself 
to become the candidate to replace Biden. She knew this was coming. Some of this may have been instigated by the Obamas to make sure it did come. But Michelle has copied everything Barack did on his path to the White House. Barack was the keynote speaker for John Kerry in 2004. Sure enough, there was Michelle who introduced Joe Biden in 2020, keynote speaker. Barack wrote two autobiographies, Dreams for My Father and The Audacity of Hope. Michelle wrote two best-selling autobiographies, Becoming and The Light We Carry. They're also both on Netflix. Michelle just won a Grammy, her second Grammy for the audiobook version last week. And, of course, Michelle has a voter registration organization, very powerful, called When We All Vote. She got $26 bucks from George Soros for this. Same, again, mimicking Barack had an organization called Project Vote. So Michelle is the most popular Democrat. She's the most beloved person in the country. She has the pop culture uh, position. And I think she's positioned herself with 100 million social media followers uh, to, to take uh, the mantle of the Democrat nominee. And uh, I think it's going to happen sometime up and could be all the way up until the convention in, in, in August in Chicago, of all places, her hometown. Uh, it is extraordinarily interesting. So what do you make of the constant reports? And I hear this from political insiders as well as a large number of reporters uh, that she continues to profess no interest whatsoever, continues to say that she doesn't like the way her husband was treated as president, although I think he was treated extremely well, uh, and uh, that there's no chance that she would change her extraordinarily opulent uh, lifestyle in order to run for president. Well, look, uh, when you hear these things that are obvious lies, you heard the story from O'Keefe's interview with somebody that Michelle said that Barack wasn't treated well. Well, that's not true. He had, was treated with great reverence. We've heard her excuse from 2008. She was so political, you might remember, uh, campaigning for Barack. Uh, every night she was being so nasty, saying nasty things about America. You can't afford food in this country. You can't pay your mortgage. Don't get sick in this country. She went over the top and said, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country. Then people started paying attention, and the campaign told her, we could lose because of you. People are going to hate you. Now they're paying attention. So the next day she got a speechwriter, and she said, oh, I hate politics. I just want to be the mom-in-chief. So she's kind of taken that uh, ever since then to be kind of in the background. But she is very political. She's a better politician than Barack. She comes from a political family. Her father was a precinct captain. Since she was four years old, she was going around with her father trying to get the black voters to support the white liberal machine in Chicago. Michelle grew up in Jesse Jackson's house. She was best friends with his daughter Santita in high school when Jackson was running for president. She said she grew up in his house. So she's always been around politics. She married a politician. She married her father. So Michelle is extremely political, and she's kind of hidden behind this idea that she doesn't like politics. And I think the reason for that is she can't show any interest because then all of the news would just go crazy. She's waiting for her moment to reluctantly do us all a favor, bring us all together again, and remind us of how great the Obama years were. Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Joel Gilbert. He's a documentary filmmaker based in Los Angeles. He's best known for exposing Barack Obama in his 2012 film, Dreams from My Real Father, uh, as well as, as his 2016 expose on Bill Clinton's uh, black son, Danny Williams. Uh, Joel's other films include There's No Place Like Utopia, Trump, The Art of the Insult, uh, The Trayvon Hoax. Uh, he's also produced uh, films by uh, on Bob Dylan, uh, and uh, Paul McCartney. 
uh, his current blockbuster book and film, again, Michelle Obama 2024, her real life story and her plan for power. Uh, I should also mention that Joel Gilbert is an accomplished uh, musician, uh, has played in a Bob Dylan, Dylan tribute band and has an, an encyclopedic knowledge uh, of America's greatest troubadour, Bob yeah, Dylan. All true, all true. So how, would, how do you actually see this in terms of the timeline uh, unfolding, Joel? Because uh, you know, I, I admit that I have changed my thinking in terms of how this was unfolded. In other words, uh, I remain committed to what I said at the Turning Point USA conference in Palm Beach last year when I kind of shocked the crowd and said, look, let me tell you, Joe Biden's not going to be the uh, Democratic nominee. Uh, he is, uh, it's going to be Barack uh, Obama. So when we come back, let's talk about the timeline yep. under which this is likely to unfold. Uh, folks, if you're just uh, tuning in, I'm here with documentary filmmaker Joel Gilbert. We're talking about our mutual view that Michelle Obama will emerge as the 2024 Democratic candidate for president and will be right back. Welcome back, folks. Uh, I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio. Perfect time for you to go to the App Store and download the 77 WABC Radio app. That way you won't uh, lose or miss any of the great programming that we have here at 77 WABC. Yesterday I went head-to-head -head with former Congressman Anthony Weiner uh, in a classic left-right clash. We talked about Trump and Biden. We talked about the border. Uh, we talked about these Supreme Court cases. Uh, it was truly epic. You can go to WABCradio.com or go to the 77 WABC radio app and hear that epic clash. Uh, I, I think you will enjoy it. Returning now with Joel Gilbert, uh, his documentary filmmaker. Uh, my question before the break, Joel, was uh, how do you see this unfolding time-wise? In other words, the Democrats have cleared the process. Uh, they made sure that Joe Biden has no meaningful opposition for the Democratic nomination. He, he's going to rack up the votes to be nominated uh, regardless of the events of late last week. Uh, at what point do we go through this kabuki theater of them drafting Michelle? Because Michelle, in my opinion, she will never actually run. She will act uh, disinterested. Uh, she'll appear to be opposed. Uh, and then she will ultimately relent uh, based on the argument that, well, Michelle, you must run because you're the one person who could conceivably defeat the surging Donald Trump. How do you see this unfolding? Well, I think that the uh, in, in Michelle's point of view, they've made the uh, DNC in Chicago, her hometown, for a homegirl coronation right there in Chicago. And I think ultimately she would prefer for uh, Biden to be told he has to drop out right up at the convention, which would allow her a 10-week only scrutiny time until the election to ride her personal popularity all the way to the uh, election. However, I think uh, 
the timeline can and is being accelerated by Biden's deterioration, by this uh, fiasco of a press conference, by the her report saying that he can't really remember things. We've got uh, Hunter's testimony coming up in the House. It's going to be very damning, I think, for Joe Biden. He will be impeached, I believe, by the House. So as Biden kind of crashes and burns and is unable to function, it's going to move up the timeline. Uh, I could see a scenario where Biden drops out after he gets enough delegates, and Michelle then will declare sometime in, in uh, May or June. Uh, now, she can fill up stadiums. Uh, she, remember, she likes to imitate Barack. She's copying what Barack did. Barack ran a nationwide stadium-based uh, campaign where he filled up huge venues and gave these fantastic speeches to adoring crowds. Michelle has the ability to do that. I attended the YouTube theater here in Los Angeles last December uh, when she gave a, 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 you know, a talk with Oprah, and it's a 6,000-seat theater, and people were lined up two hours in advance, and they had tickets. So she has that pop culture phenomena ability. So either it could happen as Biden continues to crash and burn, uh, or it might go all the way up to the convention, and you'll hear the delegates screaming, Obama, Obama, and Michelle will be coronated. Either way, it's going to happen. Uh, I know that there are people out there listening to this who may be making jokes about uh, Michelle Obama's gender. I think they're making an egregious mistake. Uh, address that question, Joel, because no one has more exhaustively uh, investigated, or I should yeah. say researched, Michelle Obama than you have. Yeah, I've uh, been to Chicago. Uh, I've talked to three of her boyfriends, her mother, her high school and elementary school classmates, principals, teachers, you name it. Got all the photos of her as a kid. I can assure you Michelle is female and has always been female. It is a joke that came up from a comedian. Uh, you know, Joan Rivers was asked, will we ever have a gay president? And she joked, well, we already have one in Obama and Michelle's transgender. And when she died two months later in a kind of a strange circumstance, the Internet kind of ran with that, I think, because Michelle has had 15 years of all positive publicity, nothing ever negative. So I think that's when people kind of picked up on that. But she is female, and she, but she is a total phony, and that's her biggest vulnerability. She's not a phony because she's male. She's a phony because Michelle has a terrible relationship with the black community in Chicago, and I chronicle this in my film and book. Michelle grew up uh, as the black face of white flight. She refused to study with other black kids. Her and her brother went an hour away. Her brother went to a Catholic school, even though they weren't Catholic, all white. Michelle went to a magnet school. They refused to go one block away and study at an all-black high school, which was a good school. Michelle had no black friends growing up. The black girls would beat her up and told her she was acting white and talking white. Uh, they called her an Oreo, which is a racial insult. It means you're black on the outside. You're really a white girl on the inside. Even when Barack met her, he's written that Michelle reminded him of his white grandmother from Chicago, and the family was like, leave it to Beaver. So she was never part of the black community. She falsely claims she's from south, the south side of Chicago. She's really from South Shore, which is an upper-class community on Lake Michigan. And then there's the, I've chronicled how Michelle got her revenge on the black community when she worked for the mayor of Chicago. She kicked 20,000 black people out of their homes. She sold them out for money. Whenever white liberal politicians were having problems with black people, they couldn't hire a white person for the do the dirty work. Michelle would take those jobs. She told 20,000 people, it's going to be good for you to lose your homes. And then the University of Chicago Medical Center hired Michelle to kick black people out of their emergency room. Michelle headed up for 300000 a year, something called the Southside Health Collaborative. 
And if you were black and showed up, Michelle would put you in a white van and ship you back to a crappy clinic on the south side and tell them it's going to be good for you. So Michelle has a completely phony story claiming I'm from the south side. I was held back in life because of my skin color. Uh, I overcame racism. It's all lies to trick and fool minority voters into thinking I'm one of you. I'm one of these ordinary black folks. When, in fact, Michelle is someone who exploited and sold out the black community. And that's her phoniness, and that's her biggest vulnerability. So uh, how do you think a race with Donald Trump uh, versus Michelle Obama would unfold? Well, Michelle's going to start out with a huge pop culture uh, uh, support, with the media support, with, uh, you know, she's just so popular personally. And she's going to try to make this a very short campaign, maybe a 10-week run-up to the election. And, uh, but her phoniness is, is her biggest vulnerability. I think if Donald Trump just would tweet, maybe every day he could tweet, Michelle, are you going to apologize what you did to the black community in Chicago? Michelle, are you going to apologize for denying access to health care to people because of their skin color? Michelle, are you going to, what are you going to do about the 20,000 people you kicked out of their homes because they were black? That would open up a whole can of worms. I think the black community is very sensitive to someone selling them out. And Michelle is a sellout. She's somebody that sold out her uh, race for money. And uh, that's what Trump, I think, should, should focus on. And, uh, but it's going to be a, a tough uh, battle because she is so popular and has so much media support. Yeah, I have uh, been very impressed uh, by the increased support uh, that is reflected in the African-American community uh, in virtually all of the legitimate polling that I have looked at. Uh, I thought in 2020 uh, that President Trump missed the boat by not talking more about his historic accomplishments in the area of criminal justice reform, uh, the First Step Act, the Second Chance Act, uh, where uh, he fixed inequities in our legal system. Uh, for example, the effects of the 1994 crime bill, uh, which mandates the harsh mandatory penalties for the first time nonviolent crime of possession of small amounts of drugs, which has fallen sadly disproportionately on people of color. These are people who uh, belong in drug treatment programs, not uh, in uh, public and long-term incarceration. Uh, Donald Trump uh, is the president who changed that, who reformed that, uh, but uh, sadly the president never spoke uh, about that. Uh, he rarely spoke about it. They didn't use urban radio, which I certainly would have used to get that word out. I think it some disagree with me, but I think it is among his greatest accomplishments. Uh, yet today, you really see significant inroads uh, by Donald Trump, I think largely because uh, of a recognition in the minority community uh, that he's being unfairly harassed in the legal system, something they're very, very familiar with. Uh, the largest gain, obviously, among black men, but also uh, a slight gain among black women. Now, Donald Trump doesn't need to win anywhere near a majority of these traditionally Democratic voters to get reelected. What he does need to do is make incremental gains, significant gains, uh, and that seems very possible. I guess my question, Joel, is does the nomination uh, of uh, Michelle Obama destroy that opportunity? I think Trump still has that opportunity because he delivered so much for the black community that the Democrats had promised for 60 years and never delivered. Trump brought 
school choice, uh, robust economy, prison reform, everything that Democrats had promised. And that was the biggest threat of Donald Trump, because they need about 90 percent of the black vote to get their people elected. That's why when Biden got in, the Democrats started pointing, appointing black people to every conceivable role that they could do. U.N. ambassador, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, defense secretary, uh, the uh, Speaker of the House, uh, Supreme Court justice, you name it, with the rather cynical and insulting idea to the black community, we have people that look like you, so you should vote for us. That's, their, that's what they think. That's how ridiculous it is. Uh, but they think, I believe, that Michelle Obama will shore up their shortcomings because of her skin color and because of her popularity. But as you mentioned, Donald Trump has a, a record of accomplishment. The Obama years did nothing for the black community. They ruined race relations in this country, the Obamas did, and they uh, filled up the urban communities with illegals, drove down wages, and harmed the black community. So I think Donald Trump has a case to make, and he should make it. All right, uh, documentary filmmaker Joel Gilbert. Today on The Roger Stone Show, Joel, tell us very quickly the website where people can see your work. Please go to Michelle Obama 24, michelleobama24.com. You can see the trailer, hook up to where to buy the, the book and watch the movie online at salemnow.com, Amazon Prime Video, and amazon.com. All right, thank you, uh, Joel Gilbert. I'm Roger Stone. This has been The Roger Stone Show. Hang on, because my good friend Joe Piscopo will be right along with Sundays with Sinatra. Thank you, and God bless you.